0: This is the podcast by the Straits Times. Goal twenty thirty four or an own goal, and what does it mean to be a professional athlete in Singapore? Welcome to a game of two halves, the Straits Times weekly sports podcast that is broadcast every Tuesday. I am sports editor Liu Lin, and with me are my colleagues, assistant sports editor Low Lin Fong, and sports correspondent Sazali Abdul Aziz. Lin Fong, you broke the big news over the weekend about the FAS dreaming of having a team at the 2034 World Cup. Tell us briefly what this entails.
1: Basically, goal 2034 is a target that FAS have set for the Singapore National Football Team to qualify for the World Cup in about 15 years' time. So I spoke to FES vice president Edwin Tong about it and he thinks that it's a realistic goal that Singapore can achieve because they're going to look into grassroots football, youth development, you know, schools, so it'll be quite comprehensive. The blueprint is not I think it's not out yet, but it's something they're still talking to stakeholders. So this is the dream for now.
0: Okay, SAS, you're the football expert here. Is this a pipe dream?
2: Well, I, I wouldn't call it a pipe dream in a sense. It's not unattainable, but it's certainly very, very difficult. I mean, you can see why there are sceptics. Just last month and earlier this month rather, I think the under-15 and under-18 national teams crashed out of their respective ASEAN tournaments, which Malaysia won, you know. So people are saying that you can't get that right, you want to aim for the World Cup, you know, which I guess is fair criticism. But then when you talk about the 2034 World Cup, these are not the players you're talking about. Maybe some of the under-15s, a couple of them might be in that team in 2034. But they're looking at players who are now maybe aged between 8, 9 and 13. That they, They'll be in their peak in 2034. And I actually think it's workable because fifteen years is both a long time and a short time. You know, it's a short time if you talk about getting things right and getting things in place and getting it functioning well, you know, and and producing that pipeline of talent that we've struggled to for so many years. But it's a long time in a sense, it's over so many years, you know. So I think active SG is a huge factor now, which we didn't have in nineteen ninety-eight. Active SG is obviously run by National Sports Agency, Sports Singapore they have the facilities they have qualified coaches they're accessible they're not very expensive I and mean, they help to get kids playing and that helps to build the pool of talent and i've seen some of the active sg elite teams play and they are really good for their age so the key like i said you know is getting things right and doing it consistently over a number of years And not just for two or three years or something like that. And that's where we can probably see the fruits start to bear in a number of years. And hopefully all the way through to 2032, Mm. 2034.
0: Okay, now you talk about getting things right. What are the things that we need to get right? We have seen some issues at club level. The SPL is not a particularly convincing product, I think. Sure. I know it's a reinvigoration of the S-League, but... I don't think the numbers are terribly convincing. I don't think the performance is terribly convincing, yeah. right? So what basis are you going on when you say this is not a pipe dream? So what are the things sure. that we need to get right? Lin
2: well, Linfon and I were just talking about this a bit earlier, where the SPL is, let's face it, in 2030, we're not going to be paying our SPL footballers $30,000 a month. So the players, or rather the youngsters whose parents are now saying, don't play professional football, there's no money in it. It's still not gonna change lah. you know, in 15 years. But what can possibly change is more opportunities for our players to play abroad and better themselves and get better salaries. Just like what Iceland did lah. you know, basically a lot, a huge chunk of their team are applying their trade overseas. But how to get to that level is another question, you know. And obviously when we say overseas, we're not saying the whole squad play in Malaysia, lah, you know, because we have a bunch of players playing in uh, the second division in Malaysia, which would be comparable to SPL standards. Ideally, in a decade time, you know, we, we can see players playing in Japan, in the top tier of Thailand at the very least, you know, which arguably has the strongest league in ASEAN. And probably even further, you know, Bayhaki almost secured a contract in Saudi Arabia uh, last year or, or even down under in Australia. So maybe what we need is a shining light, you know, one player to sort of show us it can be done. You know, uh, we've had some youngsters who have shown the courage to go abroad at, you know, 16, 17 Mahathir. Azman, who spent a couple of years in Brazil, and Adam Swandi, who obviously famously went to France with FC Mets. Both of them have picked up knee injuries and various other reasons. But like I said, if there are more going abroad, the chances of at least one or two of them being successful is higher.
1: I think also the issue with football is also the same for a number of sports. How do you keep these young athletes in the sport? Mm. So SPL is one option. Not a great option at the moment, according to what some of the footballers, current footballers, say. You know, it needs to get better. But I think other than professionally, there also need to be certain milestones that the team has to set in order to convince people that we are on some way to getting to the World Cup in 2034 like say under 23 tournaments like SEA Games sure. you know, we should win a regional gold medal first You know, before you win a SEA Games you win the Asian Games or make the AFC Asian Cup then people will actually be convinced that maybe you know we are on the yeah. right path and
2: which like. I mean I have to admit I find mm-hmm. it a bit strange that the target is to go immediately look at the World Cup because we haven't ever qualified for the Asian mm-hmm. Cup you know the one time we played we were host. so uh, I think that would have been a more prudent target but then again You know, sometimes in sport, you have to uh, aim high high, uh, (laughs) and make ambitious, audacious even statements and try to get there.
0: Okay, how much financial backing will this probably require? Are you concerned? Because I recall from Goal 2010, there was a lot of financial backing for Goal 2010. And the thing is, in Singapore, the corporate sponsorship pie is finite. And if I recall correctly, Goal 2010 took up a lot of that and some of the other sports were left struggling. I think it's better now, but I don't know whether you can give
1: some insight into that. I think sponsorship is always hard for sports. You definitely have other sports griping about bigger sports like football, for example, getting a bigger share of the pie. But if you look at the budget that Singapore football works on compared to, say, Japan or Korea, you know, it's always been a gripe that so much is like 10% of what Japan probably gets. So it's all, I mean, in relativity, it looks like a lot in Singapore, but not a whole lot if you compare with the rest of the world. But corporate sponsorship is always, always hard. Um, So I'm guessing a lot of it will probably have to come from the government. So that really depends on who's on board. And Sasi Kumar actually gave this excellent comment yesterday when one of my colleagues spoke to him about funding and he said, if you want to go to the moon, you need top scientists to build a rocket because you cannot get there on a double-decker bus. So that I think is a good indication of how much funding is really required.
0: Okay. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series, A Game of Two Halves, on Apple or Google Podcasts or even on Spotify. Like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation. Sazali, your stories on the struggles faced by boxer Mohamed Ridwan kicked off our special series on Singapore's professional athletes. Did you glean any insights while developing the story?
2: Yeah, well, I've been following Ridwan's career since he was an amateur national boxer. So I've seen him make the transition into the professional scene. And I know the struggle he goes through both in terms of funding as well as trying to get the right level of coaching and the right level of support from promoters, right opportunities. So I hope I did him justice with the story, which I hope, pulls the curtain back a bit and helps our readers understand what it means to be a pro athlete and I really hope when you look at the athletes in our series we have some people who are like Ridwan who you know they have to juggle a couple of jobs you know he manages a gym to sort of be a bit more comfortable financially and we also have people like Joseph Schooling and Haris Harun who have lucrative deals either via sponsorship or salaries from uh, in Harris's case from his club at Joe Darro Takzim so different athletes face different challenges and you know some are also trying to pursue their dreams while having families to feed. So, like I said, you know, I hope the series sort of presents the reality you know, of what it's like to be a professional athlete in Singapore.
0: In your
1: opinion, what more can be done to support our pro athletes? Definitely funding is what many of them will say. But I think of course funding is very important. But there's also a lot of other factors like how professionally run their setup is. Because the interesting thing that Joseph Schooling said, you know, after his Olympic win, after winning that gold medal, he sat down with the media and he talked about what sport needed to do better in terms of single swimming or whether it's the whole sport setup. And he said, back in Texas, you know, he turns up at the swimming pool, the bus is there, everything is really nicely set up, you know, you don't end up waiting long time getting tired. So these are really small little things that actually all add up and count because the attitude waits there, he gets tired, he gets bored. So it's really about this whole having everything run smoothly, it's professional, it's done well and everything is taken care of in that sense.
2: I had a chat with Ridwan about this actually last year when he was already a professional. He turned pro in uh, early 2016, so... He was already professional and he was lamenting the lack of funding like Lin Fung mentioned and obviously it's a bit of a tricky situation because it's hard for you know a national sports agency uh, in sports Singapore to justify funding athletes who are not representing Singapore at major games like the Olympics or SEA Games with what essentially is taxpayer money but perhaps it's time to relook what it means to put it commas, represent the country because for example if Ridwan wins the World Boxing Council WBC world title he'll put Singapore's names in the headlines you know and you know isn't that sort of representing the country in some way I mean you look at Andy Ruiz the Uh, A lot of people call him the fat Mexican boxer who knocked out Anthony Joshua a couple months ago. He was the toast of Mexico. He's an American boxer with Mexican lineage. Uh, You know, and he's been touted as Mexico's first heavyweight boxing champion. So, at the end of the day, in a lot of sports, if you achieve something, they, they look at your nationality. So I do count it as representing your country and maybe, like I said, International Sports Association, sorry, National Sports Agency can sort of relook really at whether they might be able to help in some way with these pro-athletes' needs.
0: But the thing is about being pro is that technically you're on your own. Yeah, you're of course. independent, exactly. right? Shouldn't be taxpayers. And you're funded. supposed
2: to earn from your professional yes. career. That's, yes. that's where there's a very blurred line, I guess.
0: So do our pro-athletes do enough to then gain corporate support because usually you don't get government funding right that's the thing about turning pro but there's nothing to stop them from getting corporate backers right but in sport we know especially in the local sport scene where we don't really have a sporting culture i get that it's difficult but what more can the athletes do to sell themselves and what more can the corporates out there do to back our pro athletes
2: like i said It's really tough, you know, it's really tough when you're alone, you're trying to strike it out alone. Like Ridwan, he had a sponsorship with Ayam Brand, the tuna company, but it was in kind. And a lot of sponsorships for, I guess, the the smaller athletes are in kind. And there's only so much you can do with cans of tuna, you know. At one point, he, he was joking with me, he said, I was trying to, I was eating tuna every day, I was trying to think of how to eat tuna different ways. And in the end, he still has a whole inventory of tuna. So really, he does a lot of hard work trying to source out sponsors, corporate sponsors. He has got a tyre company who have sort of chipped in a bit with some, uh, you know, four-figure sponsorships here and there for training camps and stuff like that. He wears their logo on his t-shirt to the ring and tries his best to promote them on social media. Like you mentioned, the corporate support for sports in Singapore is not a huge thing. So, and it's tough already for NSAs, for large sports like soccer. Even the Singapore Premier League struggles to attract sponsorship. So, what else? One single boxer, you know what I mean?
1: One suggestion for Widwan, maybe he could think about recipes for tuna, <laughs> like how to cook tuna in many different ways. But I think it's a lot, something's also about the athlete coming up with creative ways with their sponsors. Because now they have Instagram, you can do it on Instagram and Facebook. So, there are more innovative ways, and some athletes have actually done it as well. So yeah, I think for a lot of athletes, it's also about balancing. There's worries about balancing sponsorship commitments with training as well. So just like Joseph schooling when he doesn't do so well, people say, oh, you know, you're too busy with your sponsors. So that's a tough one for them as well. You need the money and the funding, but you have lots of other things to do as well. And on that note, that's the final whistle, bringing to a close a game of two halves.
0: Thank you for listening to us.
1: That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.